Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Okay, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Shine in our hearts, O Master who loves mankind, the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your Holy Scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory, together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This evening, we have uh, an interesting format, two 45-minute sessions with a little break in the middle. I'm not going to give a, uh, the, my brother's bio uh, to read at you where he went to school, okay, Catholic University, PhD. He's got a wonderful education. He speaks biblical Greek, and all those things are good, but more importantly for us tonight is that he believes in God, and uh, he's a faithful priest, and I'm honored to call him my brother. So, Welcome, Father Sebastian. The, the microphone is all yours. Thank you. It's good to be here. Welcome, everyone. My brother's already welcomed you, but I want to welcome you as well. This is an exciting topic. Tonight, we are going to talk about a small but very significant episode in the history of ancient Israel. Most people know about the creation story, the flood, the call of Abraham, the Exodus, the period of the judges, the rise of the Davidic kingdom, and then the Babylonian exile. What many don't know, however, is that while many Jews were taken into exile in Babylon, many were not. Though many Jews were taken, many were left behind. It is these Jews, this group of people who were left behind, that is the subject of our study tonight. But in order to understand the story of those, those people, we have to do a little reminding of ourselves of some background of where they came from. You recall that when God made man, he made him in his image and likeness. God made us in his image and likeness. What does that mean? It means we are his children, right? You look in the mirror. You look like your parents. This is a Hebrew way of saying that God made man out of all of creation in, as his own children. We are created to grow into that image continuously as children grow, as they grow older, more and more into the image and likeness of their parents. 
when you were a child, you may have looked in the mirror and said, I don't look much like my dad or mom. But as you get older, you start to say, wow, I really do look like them. Right? And you act like them too, for better or for worse. This is what it means that God made man in his own image and likeness. He made us for relationship with him. Man is by nature a religious being. You can't get away from it. It's part of our hardwiring. We're made for relationship. We're made for religion. Every human being is religious by nature. It's part of the hardwiring. You can't get rid of it. You can change out the software. Someone can say they're an atheist or they're agnostic or they're a Buddhist or they're a Christian or they're Muslim, whatever. That's the software. You can change that out. But every human being is religious. Even the most ardent atheist is a religious being. They worship something. It may not be the God that you worship, but they worship something. And we are created so that when we worship, when we grow into that relationship, we begin to become more and more like the thing we worship. It's part of our hardwiring. You know the tragic story. I don't need to remind you of all the details of how man turned away from God, his loving father, and worshipped the creature instead of the creator, right? Saw in that tree, in that creative thing, the thing they thought that they would have joy and happiness. From there, man continues to stumble in the fall, farther and farther away from his heavenly father, and falls into all sorts of pagan worship. The idolatry that began in the garden, in the worship of that tree, continued in the worship of the other creatures, as if they were gods. But God is a loving father, and he will not allow his creation to turn away from him and fall and continue to fall and end in decay. As any loving fathers here know, you desire the health, the goodness, the prosperity, the fruitfulness, the fulfillment of your children. That love that you might have for your child is only scratching the surface that, the, that our loving Heavenly Father has for us. And so God, a loving Father, called Abraham. He called Abraham from pagan idolatry, as we're told in the book of Joshua. From paganism, from the polytheistic world, Abraham was called so that God could reveal himself to this one man. The creator who had created his great ancestor, Adam, came to this descendant, Abraham, and revealed himself to this one man when all of humanity was worshiping the pagan gods. Why did he do this? Turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. In chapters 10 and 11, we hear after the flood how all of these nations descend from Noah and his three children. And then how from one of those family lines, Abraham is called. But why does God call Abraham? To reveal himself simply to Abraham? 
Look what it says in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Right? Leave the place where you are. And go to the land that I will show you. He's going to give him a piece of land. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And by you, highlight this, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's the purpose of the call of Abraham. As St. Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, God desires that all men be saved. God desires that all men be saved because he's a loving father of all of humanity. They may all be estranged, or many estranged, but he desires that all of them be saved, to return to the household, to the family, so that they may have life. So we hear that God called Abram for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the nations from whom he was called. And this is why God calls human beings throughout salvation history. This is why he has called you to this lecture tonight, for the sake of those who did not have a chance to listen to this lecture. You have been called in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family to do something for the sake of the neighborhood, the family, the workplace. Turn with me to chapter 15 for a few more details about these descendants of Abraham and this land. Chapter 15, God promises there that Abraham will have many descendants, like the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. You know the story. And he says in chapter 15, verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, a dread and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know the certainty that your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be slaves there, and they will be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you yourself, you shall go down to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. I like this, verse 16, and they, your descendants, shall come back here to this land where you are, Abram, in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Underline that last line. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Who are the Amorites? The Amorites, that term is being used in this particular passage here to refer to the inhabitants of the land in what we call the promised land, or Palestine, or Canaan. It has different names. The land of the Amorites. The peoples of the land are there, and they are wicked, but their iniquity has not yet reached a threshold to the point where they will need to be exiled from the land. But when that time comes, your descendants will come here and inherit their land and disinherit the Amorites. Why? Because of their iniquity. Because of their iniquity. You recall that Isaac bore Jacob. Jacob had 12 tribes. You know the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't have time to cover all these things. And eventually the 12 tribes went into Egypt. And then you recall after 400 years approximately, 
God brought Israel out of Egypt by the hand of Moses in the story of the Exodus. Moses led the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. And then, after 40 years, it was time for the people of Israel to enter in. God is the author of history. The 40-year wandering in the wilderness coincided precisely with the threshold of the iniquity of the Amorites. And now Israel is going to go into the land. But before they go in, Moses gives them some severe warnings. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is your last of your five books of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one. Yahweh our God is one. We only have one God. This is the famous Shema prayer. You may have heard Jews say this in the morning and the evening, right? In the morning they get up, and the evening they go to bed. They recite this. This is a statement of monotheism versus polytheism. Why did they get this statement? Why did Moses say this at this moment? And why did the Jews hold it so uh, sacredly? Look what it says. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one, one Lord. And you shall love Yahweh, your God, as opposed to the gods of the nations, right? With all your heart, with all your soul. Underline the word all, maybe 50 times there. All. What do you mean all? It means that you can't be a polytheist. You can't worship Malek and Baal and Yahweh. No. One Lord. With all your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. I'm sorry, verse 6. And these words which I command you this day you shall put upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and a frog hang between your eyes. Right? The mark on the forehead and on the hand. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and goodly cities, which you did not build, I like this, with goodly cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things, which you did not fill, and cisterns hewn out, which you did not hew, and vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take heed lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You forget Yahweh. The one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you, you shall fear Yahweh, your God. This is all about monotheism versus polytheism here. You shall serve him and swear by his name. You shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people who are round about you. For Yahweh your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. What does that mean, jealous God? It means that he's unique among the gods. He will not allow you to worship 
other gods along with him. You could only worship him. Why is that? He just really likes attention, I guess. Well, God's immutable. He doesn't change. You can worship him or not worship him. It's not going to change God. It changes you. Remember, it's part of your hardwiring. You're a religious being. So if you put the right God in front of somebody, then they grow into the image likeness of the, of the right God. If they are worshiping the wrong God, then they grow into the image and likeness of the wrong God, which, as St. Paul tells us in the psalmist as well, is the pagan gods or demons. And God does not want his children that he created to grow up in the image and likeness of fallen angels. Those with whom we are in relationship with, those around us or the God above us, is that which we grow in to relationship with and imitate. We become like, right? You know this with kids, with their friends at school, right? You know this with kids with a, you know, a poster of whatever the teen idol is on their wall. They start dressing like, acting like, imitating, singing like. It's part of the hardwiring. So he says, verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around about you. Verse 15, for the Lord your God is in the midst of you as a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he, look at this, destroy you from off the face of the earth, or the land, from off the face of the land. So they get a warning there. Now turn with me to another warning in chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 8 and 9 of Deuteronomy. This is Moses still warning them over and over in almost every chapter of Deuteronomy. He says these same things, but there are some particular details in these passages that I want you to take note of. Verse 6 of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 6. You shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For... Yahweh your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land he has given you. Take heed, verse 11, lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes, which I command you this day. Now, what are we talking about? We'll hear that over and over in the Old Testament, the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances. If you look at it in context every time, we're not talking about the finer points of the law. We're not talking about whether or not they're going to want to have bacon in the morning or whether they're going to wear their yarmulke just right. All of the little microscopic laws of the, of, the, of the Torah are all intended and all point to the same commandment. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. All of the commandments point to that. And this is what it means when you hear keep the commandments, the ordinance, the statutes, keep monotheism. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then you lift up your heart and you forget Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, who walked you 
through the great and terrible wilderness. That language there, walked in the Hebrew, this is like a, a, someone walking somebody by hand. You have the image of a father walking his son by the hand through the wilderness here. With his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to, to do good in him. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power, the might of my own hand, has got me this wealth. You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as at this day. Verse 19. And if you forget, I like this, Yahweh your God, and go after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I solemnly warn you this day that you shall surely perish. And look what it says here in verse 20. Like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord. You see that? Again, notice there's no mention of bacon or whether you're going to have cheese on your burger here. These are not the concerns. All of those little laws that they had, if we had time to go back and talk about in the context, are all intended to keep Israel away from the pagan culture and united in one culture distinct, separate from them. These food laws they had and various practices, services, were intended to keep them separated from the nations around because the nations around were worshiping the pagan gods. Israel was not to be mixed in with them because as soon as they become mixed in with them, they will become like them, right? You become like that which you are in relationship with. What was their calling? Their calling was to be unlike the nations. Their calling was to be like God, so that through them, the light of the creator could shine once again and recreate the world. So that through them, like a light set on a hill, like a light a city set on a hill. They could be the, the focal point of the nations. The nations should come to them, not they to the nations. And through them, all the nations would be blessed. You recall the promise to Abraham. This was their calling. Now, of course, they never did any of this, but this is what they were supposed to do. Chapter 9. Chapter 9. Hear, O Israel. You are to pass over the Jordan this day to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to the heavens, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom he has said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? They were great warriors. Know, therefore, this day that he who goes before you goes before you as a devouring fire, a devouring fire like who is the Lord your God. God's going to go before them that pillar, you remember? He will destroy them and subdue them before you so that you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Verse 4, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. You see that? 
Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And a bonus that he might confirm the word which the Lord spoke to your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that promise? So why are they going in to dispossess these people from the land? Well, God is clearing a piece of geography. It's all his. Okay? He created it. He owns the whole thing, the whole big blue ball. Okay? But he's clearing some land out, making some space, moving the polytheists out and away so that he can have a piece of land, a safe zone, in which he can bring the descendants of Abraham in who are supposed to be and are supposed to remain monotheist. And so that through them, he can, as he said to Abraham, save the rest of the nations. That's the purpose. Verse 6, know therefore the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because you're righteous, for you are a stubborn people. And then Moses goes on, of course, to recount all the things they did in the wilderness and that he had to endure. You recall the period of the judges after they move into the promised land. You recall the rise of the Davidic kingdom. You recall hopefully also the split in the kingdom between the north and the south on that Mason-Dixon line. You hopefully recall also the polytheism that plagued the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the north. From its very beginning under Jeroboam, when they worshipped the golden calves, just like in the Exodus story, until they were finally removed from the land in fulfillment of what we just heard when the Assyrians attacked and conquered that northern kingdom. You also recall possibly the polytheism in the south, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, with its capital city, Jerusalem. You may recall the tragic story of how quickly Israel falls into polytheism after the death of David. Solomon himself, after having built the beautiful temple to Yahweh, recorded in 1 Kings chapters 6 through 8, then goes and builds, as we hear in chapter 11 of that book, pagan shrines for every one of his pagan wives. You remember he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he built these with state funding on the Mount of Olives. So that now the state religion has become polytheism. And from the time of Solomon to the end, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, continued in this polytheism. The north having been wiped away by the Assyrians eventually because of this, and the south eventually by the Babylonians. And now we come closer to our subject. Turn with me to the end of 2 Kings, chapter 21. 2 Kings, chapter 21, we hear about the wicked king Manasseh. Manasseh was the most wicked king of the history of the people of the south. He was of the line of David, but was a very aggressive polytheist. He was not satisfied with pagan temples 
on the other side of the Kidron Valley, he wanted pagan shrines in the temple of Yahweh itself. And so we read about what he did. Look, chapter 21, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Imagine 55 years under this man. His mother's name was Hezebah, and he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to the abominable practices of, highlight this, the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Hint, hint. What do you think the author is trying to tell us? He's trying to remind us of, of something from Deuteronomy. For he built high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars of Baal and made Asherah and Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And look at this, verse 4, he built altars in the house of Yahweh to these pagan gods, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, why put my name? Verse 5, and he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. He burned his son as an offering. He practiced soothsaying. It goes on and on. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more wicked than all that the Amorites had done. I like that. The people of God, the remnant that is there, the Jews, the tribe of Judah, has now become not only as wicked as the people who were dry, driven out before, but they have become, under Manasseh, more wicked than, and look what the author does, he uses the name the Amorites. The word Amorite does not occur very often in the books of Kings. He's trying to remind you of the book of Deuteronomy and what's just happened. They have just triggered the covenantal curses. And now they will be removed from the land. He tells you that so that you can understand what's going to happen in the next few chapters. We're going to hear about the people of Israel successively over three exiles being removed from the land. And as you begin to wonder, why is this happening? You know that it is because God had warned them about this very thing. As I said, there were three exiles. And this is important to understand, to understand our story tonight. There were three successive Babylonian exiles. The one you recall, or most recall, is the last one, or maybe conflation of all three. What happened is the Babylonians, as we hear, starting in chapter 24, begin to attack the land. In the absence of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonians have taken their place. And the Babylonians have now come to conquer Judah, along with the other nations, Egypt, etc., and turn them into vassal states, pay their taxes. And so in chapter 24, we hear about the first attack of Nebuchadnezzar upon the land. This is a brief reference to the first exile. You can hear about the three exiles, by the way, at the end of Jeremiah's book, Jeremiah chapter 52. You can look that up that on your own. The second exile we hear about then in verse 8 and following, when the Babylonians attack again and remove Jehoiakim and those who were left back to Babylon. The third exile 
the one that we often know more about, is recorded in chapter 25, where the Babylonians attack Jerusalem again and take people into exile. But in each one of these exiles, there were those who were left behind. At each exile, there were those who were left behind. So with the first exile, and you can turn now to uh, you can turn now to Ezekiel chapters eight through nine. The first exile, the most wicked were taken. Those who were not so wicked were left behind. The second exile, the most wicked of that remnant were taken because they had not learned their lesson. And then the those who were not so wicked were left behind. And in the third exile, there were those who were killed in battle and were the most wicked. And then those who were ever so slightly less wicked were taken off in exile, but the, there were those who were left behind. And it's that final group that were left behind that we are studying tonight. So I wanna ask you, why do you think some were taken and some were left? Why did all this happen in the first place? We already know, we just saw these texts, right? Why were some taken and some not taken? Recall the warnings of Moses. Recall the purpose of the call of Abraham. Let's turn now to Ezekiel. Ezekiel you'll find at, after Jeremiah and Lamentations, you'll come to your book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, just a bit of context, was a prophet in exile. Ezekiel was prophesying during this very time that we are talking about right now, during these three exiles. He was in Babylon. He was taken into Babylon in the second exile. Daniel was taken into Babylon during the first exile. Now, why did Daniel and Ezekiel go? They weren't wicked. God sent some righteous men along with these exiles to be prophets through whom he could speak to his people. Ezekiel was one of those. Ezekiel taken in the second exile with Jehoiakim and his mother and the rest. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter one. So Ezekiel, while he's in exile with the, these different waves coming into Babylon, he prophesies to them. One of the problems with those who came in the first and then the second exile was they thought that they were going to return to Jerusalem shortly. The first group of exiles and the second group of exiles, the second is those that with which Ezekiel had come, would say, the Lord has been too difficult. I have not sinned. Why is the Lord doing these things? Surely the Lord will have mercy on us, and shortly we will return to Jerusalem. So God sent them Ezekiel to let them know that that is not his plan. In fact, Ezekiel begins to tell them that not only will they not return to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem itself will be destroyed, and there will be a third wave of exiles. This is recorded in Ezekiel chapter 8. 
In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me in Babylon, the hand of the Lord fell there upon me. Then I beheld, and lo, a form that had the appearance of a man below was the appeared to be his loins. It was fire, and above his loins it was like the appearance of brightness, like the gleaming bronze. He sees God. It's a theophany. He put forth the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So he's in Babylon with the first and second wave, and God picked him up by the hair of his head in a vision and carried him to Jerusalem and dropped him off. And then here's what he saw. He put me at the entrance of the gate of the inner court that faces north, where there was a seat of the image of jealousy. So the very first thing he sees is a pagan idol. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw on the plains. Verse 5, then he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now in the direction of the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, the north, the North of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? Son of man, human being. Do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here? To drive me far from my sanctuary? They're forcing me to leave. I warned them. I warned them this was going to happen. You can go back and read if you like in 1 Kings chapter 9 how he warned them about this. But you will see greater things. And he now goes on to walk him around the temple. He's walking in the temple. Nobody can see him, but he can see them. And he sees around every corner an idol to a pagan god. And he sees even some of the priests leading the worship. Chapter 9. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, you executioner of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And lo, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. Right, The Babylonians are going to attack from the north. They come over the Fertile Crescent and attack from the north. This is why in the prophets you always hear about doom and destruction coming from the north. It's not like there's a problem with the north and the direction. It's just that that's how the Fertile Crescent works. So the people are going to be attacked always from the north or from the south, occasionally from Egypt, but it doesn't happen very often. So he sees these men coming, these six men. Who are they? These are angels. The Lord is, as he promised, would be with their enemies to attack them if they disobey. And so he has this vision of angelic forces coming. Six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. Every man with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen and a writing case in his side. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar, ready to go, right? He sees these six angel warriors with their swords standing at the bronze altar. This is the altar of burnt offering. But he also saw another one who didn't have a sword, but instead a writing case in his hand. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherubim on which it rested to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case 
at his side. This is an angel. And the Lord said to him, go through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark, highlight this, on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So there are two groups of people left in Jerusalem before it's destroyed. There are those who have continued in polytheism, even though they've seen two exiles leave already, two waves of exiles. And now they've continued in polytheism so much so that God now has to destroy the city. It's done. But there are two groups. There are those who had refused to worship the pagan gods, but had remained monotheistic. Go through the city to Jerusalem, put a mark upon the forehead of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed here. And to the others he said in my hearing, so now he speaks to the six angels with the swords, who are leading, of course, the Babylonian forces. Pass through the city after him. Smite, smite. Your eye shall not spare, you shall have no pity. Slay old men outright, young men, maidens, little children, women. But touch, highlight this, no one upon whom is the mark. These are those who will be left behind. The wicked will be taken away. So this is a prophecy about what what will happen. This is Ezekiel, okay? So context here. Ezekiel is in Babylon. And before the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem and destroy the city and destroy the temple in 587, those who were already in exile, those who were already in Babylon, are, through the mercy of God, sent the prophet Ezekiel, who will explain to them why Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and why they're not going to return. Could you imagine if Ezekiel had not been there and had these visions, the, uh, the maybe loss of faith of the people of Israel? When, they've re when they're in Babylon and thinking maybe they'll return someday, maybe sooner or later, and then they hear a message, uh, they hear a, some information that the Babylonians destroyed the Jer Jerusalem, the city, and flattened the temple. Well, what about the glory cloud of God? What happened to the ark? Well, what about, why did this happen? They don't know that the people who were left behind after that second exile, continued tragically to stumble deeper and deeper into polytheism. And so now they're told, what's happened in Jerusalem since they left? That the people who were left behind had not learned the lesson. And so therefore Jerusalem would be destroyed. Therefore the temple would be destroyed. And what would happen to the glory cloud? As we've discussed in other Bible studies, the glory cloud left the temple. Right? Jeremiah, as you know, hid the ark. More on that in another study. Okay, so 
this is the prophecy looking to the future. This is the prophecy looking to the future a few years before it happens. But now let's look at the details, a historical description of the actual event that took place in 587. Turn with me now to Jeremiah. This story is that we're going to look at now in Jeremiah chapter 39. This story is also recorded, and you may have an index in your Bible that indicates this to you. The, a similar version of the story is recorded in Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and also in Second Kings. In fact, we were just looking at one of those parallel texts in Second Kings. Okay? So let's look now at Jeremiah chapter 39, and we're going to look at the version Jeremiah here because we're going to continue reading in the book of Jeremiah after that. Jeremiah chapter 39. The first conquering of Jerusalem, or Judea in general, had already happened. A wave had gone, some were left behind. A second conquering now in the city as well by the Babylonians. Some were taken, some were left. That's the second exile. And then because the people who were left behind in this third exile were of two groups, there were those who sighed over the abomination, but there were those who continued in the polytheistic worship. Now a third exile will take place, and in this case, Jerusalem will be destroyed and the temple destroyed. Chapter 39, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month. You think this guy's interested in, in history, right, in pre precision? Throughout the books of Kings, you can see this also in these passages, historical passages. This, this passage here is coming out of Kings. The final form of the book of Jeremiah we have is scrolls of Jeremiah's prophecies glued together with snippets from the books of Kings so that we are able to read it historically. This is the form of Jeremiah that we have. If you take out the historical passages that are clipped out of 2 Kings, you might struggle to understand the book of Jeremiah. And this is why in the post-exilic period, when they assembled the scrolls of Jeremiah and gave us what we call the book of Jeremiah, they also interspersed with it snippets from 2 Kings to help the person who reads Jeremiah or hears it in the synagogue or in the temple understand why and what is going on in Jeremiah's prophecies from a historical standpoint. History, very important. Chapter 39, verse 3. When Jerusalem was taken, all the princes of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. And he gives you a list of the names. Verse 4. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by the way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence upon him. The king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. 
So before he puts out Zedekiah's eyes, he wants him to see one last thing. He kills all of his sons right in front of him. Then he kills all the nobles of Judah, all the rest of the royal family he can get his hands on in front of Zedekiah. And then he pokes out his eyes. So it's the last memory he has. And he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and, and bound him in fetters to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house, the house of the and the house of the people, and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried in exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city. Those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Verse 10, highlight this. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, left in the land, however, left in the land of Judah, some of the poor people who, owed, who owned nothing, and he gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Hmm. So there were those who were taken in this third exile, like the first and second, but there were also those who were left. Now, who was left behind? We already found out who they were, those who groaned and sighed over everything that had happened, all the abominations. We heard about this in Ezekiel chapter 9. Verse 11, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, the general, the captain of the guard, saying, take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. Why would they care about Jeremiah? What would they know about Jeremiah? Well, remember, during these three periods, this, from the moment they first conquered Judea, Judah became a vassal state under the Babylonians. So there's Babylonian administrators in the palace, Babylonian administrators all over the place, kind of like the Roman soldiers in the first century in, in Jerusalem. right? There are Babylonian soldiers all over the place, administrators and things like that, to make sure that Zedekiah pays his taxes. So they know, they know what this prophet Jeremiah has been saying. Jeremiah had told the people, he had told Zedekiah, if you want to remain here in the land and not go into exile like the first two groups, you only have to do two things. Remain monotheist, loyal to the Lord your God, and submit to the king of Babylon and pay your taxes. For the Lord has put him over you as a chastisement. And so if you rebel against Babylon, you are rebelling against the chastisement, you're rebelling against the hand of the Lord. And if you do that, you will go to Babylon as well. Jeremiah warns Zedekiah this, it's almost half of the book of Jeremiah, is warnings about this. And so Zedekiah, of course, did not listen. And he rebelled. But the administrators, the Babylonian guards who had heard about Jeremiah and how Jeremiah had constantly, for, for 11 years of Zedekiah's reign, had been telling him, submit to the Babylonians, pay your taxes, submit to the Babylonians. The Babylonians did not enforce pagan worship on Zedekiah. The Babylonians did not say that Zedekiah and the people had to worship Babylonian gods. They didn't care about that. You worship your gods, we'll worship ours, but just make sure you pay your taxes. So Zedekiah refused, and he rebelled against the Lord in two ways. 
He refused to worship the one true God and refused to accept his chastisement. And so they came and destroyed the city and the temple. Again, you can read more detailed account of this if you like, also in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, and also the parallel text in the second book of Chronicles. Look at verse 15, chapter 39, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, says Yahweh. Do you see that? Jeremiah is going to be saved. This man, Evan Melech, is going to be saved. There will be many who will be saved who will be left behind. Why? Because they put their trust in Yahweh and not in Baal and Malek, etc. They were sons of their creator, their heavenly father. They were growing in his image and likeness. And he is the source of all life. And so their lives are preserved. Well, what was that life like? What was the life of these people who were left behind? Chapter 40 through 43 tells us about that. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, so Jeremiah was taken up with the rest of the people. They, they gathered his people up. Many were killed in the battle. They conquered Jerusalem. People were screaming, running everywhere. And then they captured as many of them as they could. So the most wicked died in battle. Those who were ever so slightly wicked were taken captive. But as they look at this group of captives that they have chained up before they start their march off to Babylon in chains, Nebuchadnezzar says to the general, find among them the prophet Jeremiah and let him go. Take care of him, right, as we heard about in chapter 39. So he did this. He went among them. He found them. Ah, there's Jeremiah. And undid his handcuffs and said, you're free. So that's recorded here in verse 2. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah, verse 2, and said to him, Yahweh, your God, pronounced this evil against this place. Yahweh has brought it about and has done as he said, because you, that is your people, sinned against Yahweh and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now, behold, I release you today from the chains of your hands. It might be surprising to us to hear the general of the Babylonians refer to Yahweh like this, right? Remember, they're polytheists, okay? You would, hard, you would be hard-pressed to convince the Babylonians that Yahweh didn't exist, right? Polytheists 
believe that there are many gods, thousands of gods, that every nation has its own gods, every family has its own gods. The question for a polytheist is not how many gods there are, it's, it's which god should I worship? Well, the ones that are going to either help me out or be mad at me if I don't give them something, right? If I don't feed them with sacrifices and things like that. This is how they thought. So they would tend to worship their local gods, family gods, national gods. And if they heard that there was a particular god in a foreign land that was, you know, a really nice guy and blessed his people, well, I'll worship that one too. Okay, so they know that the Israelites have a God. And they know that the particular God, one special God among the Israelites, that God, Yahweh, had told them that he was going to destroy the city if they rebelled against the Babylonians. They'd heard Jeremiah say this over and over to Zedekiah and reported it back to Nebuchadnezzar. So the captain of the guard unhooked his handcuffs and said, you're free. These things all happened as the Lord your God said. Verse 4. Now, behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come. I will look after you there. We'll put you up in a nice house and everything. We've got a nice beachfront property right along the Tigris. There's another one the Euphrates. It's up to you, whichever one you want. And I will look after you well, but... If it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the land, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it is good and right to go. If you remain, then return, however. So if you're not going to come with me, then I just ask one thing, okay? I want you to go to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed as governor of the cities of Judah. So Gedaliah is one of those who was left behind, along with Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech and these other guys. And Gedaliah was chosen to be the governor, the overseer of the people who would be left behind. And he says, go to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed as governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or... Go everywhere you want. Just go. Just have fun. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present, a gift. So, you know, gave him some spending money, right? He gave him some food. Here's some beef jerky and stuff and a few things to get you by, you know. And uh, uh, and what else? Here's, here's a bag of gold if you need anything you need, okay? Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mitzvah. And dwelt with him among, highlight this, the people who were left in the land. Who were left in the land. Again, if you go back to 2 Kings, you can see this again. You can see, we're looking here at the final exile. And we hear about those who were left behind. But if you go back and you read 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25, you'll hear that at every stage, of course, there were people left behind because otherwise you wouldn't have another exile after that, right? So there were people who were left behind who were, who were told, this is what you got to do. You want to stay here. You got to repent of your sin. The most wicked have either died or been taken to exile, but you have been spared. But they wouldn't listen. And so the Babylonians conquered again, the second time, and then finally the third time. But even in this third time, there were those who were left behind to be vine dressers and plowmen, as we saw. All right, you remember that. Make sure you highlight that in chapter 39, verse 10. He left the poor in the land 
and who had nothing, and he gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So why were they poor? Well, remember that the, the religion of the state was polytheism. If you want to get in good with the state, you want to be a good polytheist, like the king and all the aristocracy and the, and the rest. But if you didn't, then you'd be sidelined. And so that's what happened to them. These people were marginalized. They were pushed out of the society. They became poor. They were, not, they were not allowed to do this and do that because they refused to worship the gods that the state was worshiping. All right. So then, verse 7. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, and had committed him to men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land, I like that, who had not been taken into exile to Babylon, they went to him. So the Babylonians leave, right? They begin the march, and they march all these people, this third wave, off to Babylon. But they left people there. And some of them who were left there were soldiers, some soldiers and things who had been scattered, some, some different detachments who had hidden in the hills and things during the battle. And suddenly, all the people start coming out of the caves and looking around and realizing they've been left behind. And they find Jeremiah. And they find Gedaliah, who's been left in charge with some Babylonian soldiers. And they went to Gedaliah, verse 8, at Mitzvah, Ishmael, the son of Nethniah, Yohanan, the son of Kerea, these other guys, they came, these are the soldiers, these are the leaders of the different detachments. They all came to Gedaliah with their men. Verse 9, and Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them and their men, saying, do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon. And it shall be well with you. Right? This is, we are under a punishment for God, from God for this. Don't rebel. We saw what happened. We've seen it a number of times already. Don't rebel. As for me, Gedaliah, I will dwell at Mitzpah to stand for you before the Chaldeans, Babylonians, who will come to us. What is for you? So here's my job, guys. I'm the governor, okay? They put me in charge. And my job is to be the mediator between you and the Babylonians, okay? I'm going to deal with the Babylonians. When they come, their soldiers, groups of people come, they're going to come and talk to me. And I'll talk to them about what's going on. What do you do? Oh, here's what you're going to do. You, as for you, highlight this, gather wine and summer fruits and oil. And store them in your vessels. These are the poorest of the land. These people had nothing. They had no houses. They had no, no vineyards. They had no olive yards, no palaces in Jerusalem. These are the poorest of the poor who had been marginalized over and over because they refused to worship the gods of the state. They remained monotheistic. And look what it says. It says, here's what you're going to do. Gather wine, summer fruits, and oil. Store them in your vessels. Dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, 
When all the Jews who were in Moab and among the Ammonites, the Edomites, and the lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah the son of Icom, son of Shaphan, his governor over them, then all the Jews, all the Jews, returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to go to Gedaliah at Mitzvah. And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. All right, so hopefully you hear an echo from what we looked at at the beginning of our discussion, right? Go take these cities, these vineyards, these olive yards, the palaces, the houses you did not build, the vineyards you did not plant. They're all yours, right? It's like an exile, a new exodus all over again. There's a palace there. There's a, there, there's a Ferrari sitting there on the street with the keys still in it. Okay? It's all yours, all yours. The wicked, who were the powerful aristocracy and were, were enforcing polytheism in the land, have all either died or been taken off in exile. The only ones left are the monotheists, who had sighed and groaned over all the abominations that took place there. These are the ones that had the mark, the mark, and who were left behind. Okay, now. Everything sounds great, doesn't it? What do they have to do? It's very simple. They have to remain monotheist. Okay, they've got that one down. They've been doing it for a while. And what's the other thing they have to do? Not rebel against the Babylonians. Well, tragically, you know what's happened, what's going to come, right? So, so they they it was very simple. Monotheism, no problem. Jeremiah and Gedaliah don't have to say anything to these people about worshiping the pagan gods. Nothing. These people are the monotheists, okay? These were Jeremiah's buddies. These were the people that actually would listen to Jeremiah and remained monotheists. But they do have to be reminded, as we just saw, that they have to submit to the Babylonians, pay their taxes, until the Lord decides otherwise. Chapter 41. Chapter 41, in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family. Aha, so now we're getting a little more information about this guy, Ishmael. Don't confuse Ishmael with the guy from Genesis, okay? Ishmael means God hears. Okay, it was a popular name. Ishmael, Isaac, Yitzhak, uh, Yaakov, Jacob. These were all, you know, these are the names of the people, their history, and they, they continued to use them. So Ishmael. Ishmael was of the royal family. He's of the line of David. And he was one of the commanders of one of the detachments. And you can tell that since he is listed first among the names of these individuals in chapter 40, verse 8, that he is obviously the most influential and powerful. Unfortunately, he decides to rebel. He's of the line of David, right? Zedekiah has been removed from the throne. This is his moment. And so, chapter 41, Ishmael, one of the chief officers of the king from the royal family, highlight that, came with 10 men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam at Mitzvah, and sat down and had a meal. 
as they ate bread together there at Mitzpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Achim, the son of Shaphan, with a sword and killed him. They killed him whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also slew all the Jews who were with Gedaliah in Mitzvah and the Babylonian soldiers, the Chaldeans, who had happened to be there, right? Took out the Babylonian guard that was there as well. On the, on the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, 80 men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed. Right? They're, they're repenting. These are men coming to, to repent for the sins of their people. Some uh, early proto-monastics here. In the sense that they come in... Uh, in asceticism, bringing cereal offerings and incense to present them at the temple of the Lord, the remnant of what was left there. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mitzvah to meet them, weeping as he came. As he met them, he said to them, Come in to get Eliah, the son of Ahikam. When they came in the city, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the men with him, slew them and cast them into the cistern. But there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, Do not kill us, for we have stores of food that we can give you. Okay, I'll keep you alive. Verse 9, Now the cistern into which Ishmael cast all the bodies of the men whom he had slain was the large cistern which King Asa had made for defense against Baasha, King of Israel, a long time ago. And then, verse 10, he fled to the Ammonites. Right? The Ammonites were rebels against the Babylonians. So he's hoping, remember the Ammonites are, not far from here. The Ammonites, if you recall, the Jordan Rift Valley, on the west side is normally what you think of as Israel, Palestine. But on the east side of the Jordan are the Ammonites at this point. The Ammonites and then the Moabites, and then you get down to the Edomites, down at the bottom of the Dead Sea. The Ammonites are right there. The Ammonites had rebelled against the Babylonians. And so... So he sees them as an opportunity. If he goes to the Ammonites and joins with them, then they're going to support him against the Babylonians and he can take the royal throne. When the word gets out to some of the other leaders of some of the detachments of what Ishmael had done, they fought against Ishmael. This is recorded in verse uh, 15. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Yohanan with eight men and went off to the Ammonites. Then Yohanan, the son of Kareah, we heard about him earlier back uh, when we heard about the guy staying for a good life, and all the leaders of the forces with him took all the rest of the people whom Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had carried away captive from Mitzvah after he had slain Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, soldiers whom the children, the eunuchs whom Yohanan brought back from Gibeam, and they went and they stayed at Geruth, Kingham, near Bethlehem, intending to go to, highlight this, Egypt. Intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had slain Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon made governor over the land. So they're frightened. These guys didn't do it, but they're worried what the Babylonians might do. When word gets back to Babylon, that Gedaliah has been killed, that the Jews who were with him have been killed, 
but and the uh, and that the Babylonian soldiers who were there have been killed by Ishmael, one of the leaders of one of these one of these groups of soldiers. When the Babylonians come, even though Ishmael's not there, they're just going to come in and start killing people again. This is what they're afraid of. So they're worried about this, even though they were innocent. And so they're afraid, and they plan to head to Egypt. You got to think of the geography here, right? The Babylonians are going to come from the north. They come over the Fertile Crescent, and so the only place to escape is to go down into Egypt. If you think that they're going to kill you. Chapter 42, then all the commanders of the forces, and Yohanan, the son of Kareah, and Azariah, and the son of, of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, let our supplication come before you and pray to Yahweh your God for us, for all this remnant, for we are left, but a few, many, as your eye, a few of many as your eyes see us, that the, Lord, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. And Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request, and whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with, with which Yahweh your God sends to us, right, to, through you. So whatever you say after you're done praying, we're going to do it. Whether it's good or evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God, good or bad, whether, whether we like it or not. We will obey the voice of the Lord your God to whom we are sending you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of Yahweh our God. You see these guys are monotheists, right? There's no question about that. Verse 7, at the end of the 10 days, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. So 10 days later, he summoned Yohanan. He summoned Yohanan, the son of Kareh, and all the commanders of the forces who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me, to present your supplication before him. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I repent of the evil which I did to you. Right. So the, the, the exiles are over. There's no more exiles that are going to happen. No more exiles. So you stay here. You're not going to die. Just trust in the Lord as you always have. Do not fear. Look at verse 11. Do not fear the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, says the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. But if you say we will not remain in this land, but disobeying the voice of Yahweh your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there. Then hear the word of Yahweh, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword which you fear shall overtake you in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow hard after you into Egypt, and there you shall die. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the evil which I will bring upon them. For thus is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. Why doesn't he want him to go to Egypt? Doesn't that sound like a great idea? No. 
brought them out of Egypt. He brought them from the polytheism of Egypt so that they could be a light to the nations and deliver the Torah, the worship of the one true God, to everyone. If they go back to Egypt, then the entire Exodus, everything that they worked for from the time Moses had brought them out until the present will be undone. Because once they get there, they will begin to worship the gods of Egypt again. Chapter 43, when Jeremiah finished speaking, all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, which with the Lord their God had sent to them, the men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. Yahweh our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live here. Baruch, your secretary, he's the one that's conned you into this, right? He set you against us to deliver us against the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us in exile. So they say, no, 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 we know what you're going to do, Jeremiah. You and Baruch have a plan. You're going to keep us here till the Babylonians get here so they can kill us or take us in exile. So they flee to Egypt. They flee to Egypt. And we'll conclude with this. When you read chapter 44 and 45 and 46, you find that the people, as they've gone into Egypt, has slipped back into polytheism. And so then God, through Jeremiah, who actually ended up going down there with them to prophesy with them while they were down there, like Ezekiel was in Babylon. Jeremiah didn't, he went down there with them, and there with them, he continued to prophesy that they would be annihilated by the hand of God, that the Babylonians were going to eventually come to Egypt and destroy Egypt as well. So fleeing to Egypt was not going to help them. Once the Babylonians come, to Judah, because of the situation of Gedaliah, they're going to continue and march down to Egypt. And there you will see the war you were hoping not to see. And there you will be destroyed because of your iniquity. Why? Because when they go there, not only will they have disobeyed Yahweh about being submissive to the Babylonians, but they will then turn back to polytheism. Here then, this prophecy against Egypt and Pharaoh by Jeremiah. Chapter 46, verse 13. Chapter 46, verse 13. The word which the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to smite the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt, proclaim in Migdal, proclaim in Memphis and Tophanes, say, stand ready and be prepared, for the sword shall devour round about you. Verse 15, why has Apis fled? Why did not your bull stand? Apis is the golden calf, right? This is the, the Egyptian god that the Israelites had worshipped. Because the Lord thrust him down, your multitude stumbled and fell, and they said to one another, Arise, and let us go back to our own people and to the land of our birth, because of the sword of the oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who lets the hour go by. As I live, says the king. It goes on and on. So Jeremiah prophesies over and over now in the end of this book, the end of his book of Jeremiah, these final scrolls, about the final destruction of the Babylonians. And most importantly for our story is what will happen in Egypt at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And so I think we can conclude then our study, though it might be a bit depressing. This was what I asked, was asked to speak on is this remnant people. 
It's a beautiful story at first, and then ends in utter tragedy. But in the end, it's really a, a microcosm or a short story uh, of really the whole history of the people of Israel. Isn't this what happened to them? They started out monotheist and ended up polytheist. It's also an important lesson for us. God called Abraham from the nations so that all the nations could be blessed by his descendants, right, through his seed. What was that blessing? To bring all the nations someday back into the people of God. All the children of Adam are the children of God, as Luke tells us in his beautiful genealogy of Jesus. All are sons of God, but unfortunately many of them are estranged from the family and away from their loving father, the source of life, they find nothing but death. And so God's love will not be undone. He sent his son so that we might have life. He sent his son who is Israel. He is the new Israel through whom all the nations shall be blessed. This is why as you approach the great feast of the nativity, Christmas, you will hear the genealogy in Matthew's gospel when he tells us, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the King, son of David, son of Abraham. Why does he say that? Aren't all sons of David sons of Abraham? Of course. But Matthew is trying to make sure you focus on something very important. Jesus is not just coming to fulfill the promises that were given to David, that there would be a dynasty that would rule over the people of God but rather he is also coming to be the one, the seed through whom all the nations would be blessed, that son of Abraham. And this is why at the end of Matthew's gospel, he concludes with those beautiful words. Go out and make disciples of all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have taught you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. May God bless you. And I believe, Andy, do we have a, a question answer period here? Yeah, thank you so much, Father, uh, for the excellent uh, study here. It's like you look at all the countless infidelities on humanity's part in this story of salvation history, and you just, there's nothing to say. You're silenced with the patience uh, and mercy. Of our God. We'll start off with a question from Kelly. She was wondering if uh, Gedaliah is a Babylonian or a Jew. Gedaliah was a Jew. He was actually of the line of David. He was of the royal family, and this is why, he, most likely, why he was chosen, because he would be more likely someone that the people would listen to. But he, would, he didn't rebel like Ishmael did. And this is, again, why Ishmael probably killed Gedaliah. He's a, contend a possible contender for the throne, right? So, yeah. Got another question from Mark. He says, is this correct? The prophets of the three Babylonian exiles are first Daniel, second Ezekiel, and third Jeremiah? Yeah, so the, the three exilic prophets, the, certain sense, the three exilic prophets are Jeremiah, who is in, he never went to, in exile, but he's prophesying, He's an exilic prophet because he's prophesying during the time when the exile is going on, all three ways. He's there. He began to prophesy in the 13th year 
of King Josiah, the 13th year of King Josiah, he began his prophecies. And of course, he had lots of great things to say about Josiah. Great stuff in the book of Jeremiah about Josiah, Josiah the great monotheist. But then after that, he began to condemn Jehoiakim, who, uh, who was not following the Lord. And then he condemns Zedekiah. And he's trying to encourage Jehoiakim and Zedekiah to remain faithful to Yahweh and submit to the Babylonians, but they refuse to listen to him. So yes, Jeremiah, an exilic prophet who never really went into exile, but he's during that time. Uh, his, his pair prophesying at the exact same time, but in Babylon is Ezekiel. In fact, this is why when you look at these two books, you'll find a lot of parallels. They're talking about the same era, just from two different geographical locations. And then, of course, Daniel. Yes, Daniel is a prophet who begins his ministry very young. Uh, we hear about his early life as a kid growing up in Babylon uh, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And then later on, as an older man, he begins to prophesy. Great. Uh, Ernie, did you have a question there? And I see a couple of hands. I'll, I'll come around. Yeah, Ernie. Yes, I do. Uh, Father, I was going to ask you, who was the line of David that continued after the third exile and after they fled to Egypt? Okay, so here's, here's something to understand, is that the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that David's sons would always sit on the throne is absolute in regards to David, but conditional in regards to any one particular son or descendant. So no king who is sitting on the throne after David, though he's of the line of David, no king sitting on the throne is guaranteed that he will remain on the throne, nor that his son will inherit the throne after him. The line of David, the promise that David is, is a promise that his dynasty would remain. Somebody from his dynasty would always rule and nobody else. And so this is why we'll actually see the, the lines hop around in different ways. Uh, Josiah. Josiah, uh, when he dies, his son Jehoiakim takes the throne. But Jehoiakim is, remain, is removed from office. And his son Jehoiakim, so this is the grandson of, of Josiah, uh, takes the throne. Then he goes off into exile, and then Zedekiah is put on the throne. Zedekiah is not the son of Jehoiakim. He's another son of, he's Jehoiakim's uncle. He's a, another son of Josiah. And because, again, because of the great Josiah, the Lord gives him two options, right? He had one son didn't work out, one line. So then as a, as a blessing to Josiah, who is already, uh, gone to the bosom of Abraham, uh, another one of his sons gets a shot at the title. But any son from the line of David can fulfill this prophecy in 2 Samuel 7. And this is helpful to understand when you look at Matthew versus uh, Luke's genealogy. The families of David are all intermarried. And so what you get is you read David's genealogy to Joseph versus David's genealogy of Joseph in Matthew and Luke. You find that he traces them, that Matthew and Luke actually trace them in two different lines. Probably because of Leverite fathers. That's probably what's happening there in a couple of cases. But more on that in our Christmas study. I think we did a little bit of that at one time. We've got two questions. Um, a couple of people are wondering about this mark on the forehead, the tau. Is there any relation with that? Is it a prefiguration of the cross of Christ or is there a connection there? Yeah, I, I, I thought that might come up. The mark on the forehead. Wait a minute. Was that a subcutaneously implanted computer chip? Right? We immediately we hear a mark on the forehead. We think, I've heard about that before. Right? 
Yeah, so, um, so two things on that. The word mark there is actually, it says put a tau or a tav on the forehead of each of them. Now, a tav in the ancient form, modern Hebrew, the tav in modern Hebrew, it's actually Aramaic character, is written like that. But that is a late formation of it. It's actually, this part here is the, is the part. The rest is the actual form. The rest of it is stylization, the calligraphy at the time. So the old form of the tom was that, the cross. And so some of the fathers of the church will look at this and say, this is, this is a type. This is an image of those who will be saved through Jesus, right? The, through Jesus in the sign of the cross. And so this is, this is a, a beautiful, beautiful insight into typology. Now the mark on the forehead also, this reminds people, that, wait a minute, but I, Sounds like the book of Revelation. Isn't it supposed to be a bad thing? Well, you've got to read the whole book of Revelation. And remember, the book of Revelation is, as I remember one of my professors once saying, the final exam of the Bible. You've got to know the whole Bible if we're going to read something like this. So, so if you read, if you go back and you look at passages like Exodus chapter 13, Deuteronomy chapter 6, I could go on. We actually looked at one of these tonight. You heard about the mark on the forehead and on the hand. The law of God was to be an internal and external manner of life. You were to live the life according to the Torah, not just externally, but internally. Moses says in chapter 11, Deuteronomy, circumcise your hearts, O Israel, not just your flesh. Right? This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew's gospel. If you, it says do not kill, but I say to you, do not even be angry. Right? There's the internal, because you've already killed the man in your heart. Don't look at a woman lustfully. For if you, it says do not commit adultery, but I say to you, do not lust, for you've already committed adultery in your heart. That's the internal and the external living out of the law. And so the law for the Jew was understood to be as a mark on their forehead. That is the, in, the what you see, right? The, the idea that when, the eyes are the window to the head and to your mind. So, and then what you do, the hand is the image of, of what you do with the law. So you are to think in your mind, in your heart, in accordance with the law, and you are to act in accordance with the law with your hands. So there was, it was said to be like a mark on your forehead and your hand. You may hear about the Jews, or you may have seen a Jew when they may in the airport, or maybe have a friend who puts the phylacteries on, right? They bind a little scroll of the law on their forehead and hands. It's, they don't believe that they're really fulfilling the, that law that way. It's a pious way to kind of physically, you know, remember it. And then, so what's going on in the book of Revelation in chapter 13? You hear about those who are the mark of the beast on their forehead and their hand. The book of Revelation, as you know from our study, and if you didn't catch it, you can go to the library uh, and listen to the study in the book of Revelation where the book of Revelation is sent to the Christians of Asia Minor in the 90s, not our 90s, their 90s. And when Domitian the emperor was enforcing pagan polytheism upon the people there. And Christians... We're having to make a decision. Were they going to follow the law of God, worship the one true God with your whole heart, your whole mind, right? Like a law on your forehead and on your hand. Or are you, going to, are you going to live in accordance with the law of the Roman Empire, which is to worship many gods? This is why you get that number 666, right? This calls for wisdom. That number 666 recalls the story of Solomon having caused the people to worship the gods when he built all those pagan shrines. Um, Peggy, did you have a question? I thought I saw your hand up. That's okay. Kind of a comment. I see today, I'd like to see how your um, father, Hezekiah, thinks about how that relates to today. Because we're still in the same place. 
can I connect a, a question that came in with what you said there, Peggy? Someone was asking, can we personally relate with the Israelites' infidelity? And um, this is Kemi, wondering if the consequences of worshiping other gods now will be the same as in the Old Testament, ruin and desolation. If yes, would consequence, consequences be the same for those who never knew God and those who knew God but turned away from him? I think it's kind of related with what you're asking, Peggy. Yes. So I, I couldn't hear Peggy at first. I had to turn my volume up. Peggy, were, that's basically what you were asking. How does it apply to today? Yes, yes, she took it, yes, she took it a lot farther than I was thinking about, but that's exactly what I went, wanted to go to because I, we're in the same place, except we have Jesus behind us, and we, we know a lot more. We're a lot more culpable, aren't we? <laughs> right, yes, we are. Yeah. Right? We've been given a lot more grace, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, um, I mean, you could apply this in some way. I mean, that's beyond, after the book of Revelation, I'm out of business, okay? So this is my area, is, is the biblical story here. How this might play out in history today or in the future, I don't know. What I know is this, is you don't need to be worried. What you need to be is in prayer, okay? The our job description as a Christian, the Christian description is this, to be witnesses of his resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of his resurrection in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the early church took care of that for us. The ends of the earth, we're still at work, right? That's our job. When I hear someone talk about, you know, maybe a, a cataclysmic event, I, it was a couple months ago, people were all excited about, I don't know, some planet hitting the earth or something and the end of the world. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Don't you guys look at history? There's a great website called endoftheworld.com. Pick out any date. Someone prophesied that it's the end, okay, even your birthday. All right, so this is not our job. And when, this is what Satan wants, is to, for Christians to be distracted from their job description, right? He doesn't want you going out and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus to the world. He doesn't want you delivering that good news. He wants you to be distracted, so he'll distract you with everything he possibly can. Accumulating wealth, uh, being afraid to say something to somebody, that, or, or worried about this political agenda, or that political agenda, or worried about busying yourself with, whatever, right? Our job as Christians is simply this, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we get distracted from that, even if we have good intentions, right? We, we think, oh, this is a good thing to do. It might be good things to do, but there is one job. We have one job description, to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus to the ends of the earth until he comes back. Even his apostles in Acts chapter 1 asked him, Lord, will you at this time, this is after his resurrection, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, not your business. Not your business. It's not the apostles' business. It's surely not mine or yours. Your job is this, my apostles, to be witnesses of my resurrection to the ends of the earth. I'll take care of the rest. Thank you so much, Father. That, there's, there's an ever-flowing stream of questions coming in here, but I've got to make the cutoff at some point. I think this is the appropriate place to do it. I know you've got your family to go back to as well. Um, you're getting silent claps, but there's a lot of appreciation out here. Thank well, you so much, Father. I, I, I encourage you all as we close here to, to remember uh, this story. Go back and meditate upon it. We've covered it very quickly. 
don't just let this be something that went in one ear and out the other, but meditate on this story. And meditate on what you hear in the rest of the, the uh, lectures with the ICC. And let these things sink into your life, saturate your life, so that we can be that for which we were called, the seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations shall be blessed. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and into ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.